0: FYI, and I don't mean fake news, this podcast contains huge spoilers. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 250 of the podcast that goes snicked what 250 but you're like running up against 400 what what's going on no you didn't look at your computer wrong your iPad your iPhone your car radio they're not wrong this is 250 episode 250 oh by the way I'm your host Jason Venable (laughs) now you may remember that a couple years ago when we were supposed to do episode 250 we were going to do the X-Men Origins Wolverine movie. Now we're still gonna do that, but I'm tired of this 250 hanging over my head. I feel like a fraud that you know I'm almost episode 400 and you can't find episode 250 anywhere and it's not because iTunes deleted it it's just not there and it's time to fix that. So we're gonna do something else and we'll get back to the the, the movie um, maybe for 400. No promises. <laughs> and we're only two years behind, but um, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But instead, for the last episode, episode 250, we're going to talk about Chris Claremont's X-Men, the documentary that you can now view on Prime, Amazon Prime, as it to view for free. Um, so I watched it on a recent business trip, and I'm just going to talk about it a little bit. This will probably not be like a super-sized anniversary episode like you might expect for 250 especially as a comic book fan, but, you know, it should be a decent little episode. Yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, like, break down all the details. I mean, a documentary is, by nature, has synopsizing, maybe, is that a word? Uh, Values and characteristics to it, and so I'm not gonna repeat that. What I'm going to do is just talk about things that I found really interesting, either because I didn't know or I maybe saw it in a different context or was just curious and interested in the way the documentary presented it. And so I'll, I'll talk about some of that. Um, you know, we'll just kind of see, see where the, the one-man conversation goes. You know, I would definitely recommend checking it out. It's only an hour and change. I mean, it's like an hour and 10 minutes, something like that. So, I mean, it's a it's a pretty easy watch. Now, I will say, let's kind of get this out of the way. Um, sometimes documentaries come along, right? And it doesn't really matter what the subject is. The, the documentary makers find a way to just make it compelling and interesting. And maybe even, like, make you interested in a subject you weren't previously interested in. Uh, that one about the... The guy walking the tightrope between the skyscrapers. I forget what it's called now. (laughs) Uh, Maybe man on a rope? man on a tightrope? I don't remember. But um, that's a good example, right? Just a a great documentary, a great film, kind of regardless or agnostic of the subject matter. I really enjoyed this documentary. This is not one of those. This is not something I would just say to anybody on the street. Hey, go watch the Chris Claremont X-Men documentary. I don't know if it really is... It's not poorly made by any stretch, but I don't know if it's, like, necessarily artsy or, or has any just really compelling filmmaking aspects to it that I would just say general audience. However, if you're an X-Men fan, I think it's a great watch. So if you already are interested in the subject, I think you should definitely watch it. If you're not, then I don't think it's one that's necessarily going to win you over and make you go, oh, man. 80s X-Men. That was the bee's knees. (laughs) Well, yeah, I could be wrong. And if anyone out there, listener, land disagrees with me, let me know. I mean, I think it's that's all subjective, right? So just, just my takeaway was that hey, I really enjoyed this. Probably not going to ask Denise to watch it, (laughs) but you know, as things go. But anyway, this is uh, let's do some of the basic writers. Of course, Chris Claremont is in there a lot. Um. Weezy, Louis Simonson, and Anderson T are kind of the other main two presences in the documentary. Uh, there's a couple other, like, kind of spot interviews. Um, have Jason Aaron, uh, Robert Liefeld, uh, a couple others. Uh, who was the guy in the X-Men shirt? Was it Lynn Ween? Uh, Mark Silvestri? Jim Shooter. Sorry, Jim Shooter in there. So definitely some interesting interviews. Um, but it's directed by Patrick Meany. Oh, what a Meany. And uh, is narrated by... ...Haley Cooper Novak. Um, or maybe Howie Cooper Novak? I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, both do a pretty good job. So, let's just kind of dive into what's there, right? Um, and I don't know how long this episode will end up being. But let's see. Let's just see what we get, huh? So, um, one of the first things, as a Wolverine fan that kind of stuck out to me as I get into the actual subject matter, is, uh, and I'd heard this before, but the idea of Len Wein um, adjusting Wolverine for the upcoming X-Men, you know, there were some ideas about what Wolverine was going to be kind of based, you know, with Dave Cockrum on the Legion of Superheroes kind of design, and he was going to have a sister and be more of a werewolf and all that stuff, and uh, how Len Wein came in and adjusted that and when he brought him into Incredible Hulk, because he knew that there was a new X-Men team coming. Now, I will say, I think it's really interesting, and they do not mention this at all in the documentary. But if you follow me on Twitter at Snitcast, um, you know besides the podcast, also have my big Marvel reading project. We started in the at the beginning in the sixties, and, and now currently about 1973 or so, and I'm right in that spot before. Know, kind of giant size x-men is knocking on the door it's not that far away but x-men has been canceled for a little while and we're kind of that spot where the x-men are kind of starting to have some guest spots but it's all the original x-men and you know it's interesting because the story that they set up where uh in secret empire right uh, the original Secret Empire, not the most recent and expensive one, but the old uh, Englehart one. Um, you know, the X-Men, the original X-Men, play a pretty big part in that story, and it almost feels like, I mean, obviously, right, there's the idea that they've been making little guest spots, you know, like, hey, remember us, we're the X-Men, our book got canceled, but don't forget us. Um, but this feels more like a kind of Bringing them back into the core of the Marvel Universe. It almost felt like they were being set up to pull out a reprint and go back to like getting a new title. I don't know anything about that. That's pure speculation on my part. That's just how it felt as a reader. Like, oh, it feels like something's about to happen with the X-Men. The reprints have been doing okay. Here's our, our core characters coming back in a big story. Uh, maybe something's happening. Now I'm wondering where maybe if that was the idea, and if so, where we pivoted to the new team. But anyway, uh, all that to say that you know, Wolverine is obviously going to be part of the giant-sized team, and it's kind of taken from a previous concept and, and plugged into the X-Men. Um, it was going to be pretty young because one thing that one of the things that Claremont talks about in the in the interview portions of this is that the decision to make Wolverine older. And that the claws would be part of Wolverine. Because even in his introduction with, with um, Incredible Hulk by uh, Lynn Ween and, and I believe Herb Trippy, right? Oh, my cred just blew up. Um, but there was the idea that they had probably originally that the claws were part of the glove, right? They were part of the almost like a a tool of the glove that came in and out you know maybe some springs or something right but but Claremont, at least according to this documentary takes credit for making the claws part of wolverine and introducing the idea that they would be painful which is kind of where the healing factor comes from um so you know there's a there's an idea that the claremont had that uh he had no idea that Shooter wrote so young. Oh, no, I had, sorry. I had no idea that Re- Shooter wrote so young. So, apparently, I found this very interesting and did not know this, and some of you guys may, may be old at, but um, there's a part of the documentary where the interviewing interviewing Jim Shooter and talking about how he started writing comics when he was a kid. Like, sent some stories to D.C. and got published as, like, a 12- and 13-year-old. And it wasn't until they kind of later found out, like, wanted him to come, like, work, that he told them their his age. <laughs> it not You know, I think they still gave him some, like, you know, random paying stories. But, you know, he had to wait a while to actually get, like, a full-time <laughs> writing job. But he... I had no idea that he started writing so young. I thought that was pretty awesome. Um, so... Dark Phoenix is obviously a focal point of the documentary. And um, Claremont talks about the idea that there have been lots of times in comics where villains make good, right? You know, maybe they've become popular, the, the fans really like them, and so to ha- let them be more involved in more of the continuous stories instead of having the same villain pop up over and over again, you see uh, the villains kind of make that transition into, into being not such a bad guy, right? Um Chris Claremont talks about how Dark Phoenix is really the first story that Marvel had a hero go full villain not just flirt with the dark side not just make you know maybe make some questionable choices or even I mean this is kind of before the age of the anti-hero but even that was not far enough uh you know Dark Phoenix really has the Phoenix Force go and Jean go full villain and If you're an X-Men fan and all, you've probably heard this. You know, they talk about the original ending. Um, the Jean was going to be fine. But Shooter wanted her in prison. And Claremont was like, no, that's going to, like, make way too much story. She'll be in prison. We'll still have to deal with her in prison after the fact. Um, And he didn't want to drag it out. So he killed her. (laughs) Um, Jim Shooter thought it was a bluff, right? Like he wouldn't really do it. But of course, you know we, we know that And he does. Um, and takes her out, and you know that's that is that, as they say. And you know, Jean stayed dead a long time until you know several years later with the retcon and the Phoenix replacing her and all that, um, which was done outside of uh, Claremont's purview at least at least initially, right? Um, So another thing they talk about is uh, Claremont wanting to redeem Magneto as a misguided, tragic hero. And that's where he came up with the backstory for Magneto. Which I gotta say, I love Magneto, but there's not much in the 60s and 70s to really hang your hat on. I mean, there's a couple of good stories. He does a couple of cool things. Obviously he's pretty powerful. But he's pretty much just standard megalomaniac supervillain. You know, Dr. Doom with magnetic powers in a different cape. Um, You know, Claremont really adds some gravitas to the character. Um, And that, you know, maybe more than anything, maybe one of his most lasting legacies is is to flesh out Magneto, at least one of my favorite legacies of his. Obviously, Wolverine, you know, being the podcast that goes nicked, uh, Wolverine's going to be way up there as well. But the Magneto and the changes he makes there. Are so interesting to me and really make him one of the best comic and one of the best characters in comics. Um, so you know, give credit where credit's due. Um, but he had a big plan that he doesn't get to, and he only falls a few years short. Um, but he talks about plans for Uncanny Three Hundred, and that he was going to kill Xavier and have Magneto lead the X-Men. Kind of like he, you know, did a little bit in the New Mutants, right? Where he, he led the school for a while while Xavier was in space. But really take that kind of a step further. Um, have Xavier die, um, and Magneto lead, and then bring in a big, bad new supervillain. He doesn't really expand on what his ideas of that villain may have been. Maybe he's hanging on to that in case he wants to use it somewhere else still, or maybe he already has, and and just didn't go over the same way. But um yeah, it doesn't really talk about buddy the specifics of the new villain. It says you know, there'd be a really like a magneto replacement, like that kind of level. Um you know, kind of think of like apocalypse and onslaught or something like that. But but a Claremont version of that. Um so another legacy that Claremont has a lot to do with that I'm very, very grateful for is the strong female characters that he really developed. Um, You know, he loved hearing women in industries talk about this and uh, his credit to to women editors. You know, basically, so kind of what he talks about is the different women comic creators and even, you know, other writers that have come up to him and really thanked him for giving the female character such a strong voice and presence and such a focus of his X-Men story and how, you know, Women readers um, really picked up. I mean, X Men was pretty, pretty had a pretty strong female leadership. But he says part of this, you know, he says you know, it's kind of what he wanted to do. But he really gives a lot of credit to uh, Weezy and Sinti as his editors during his tenure on the X Men for kind of, you know, saying like they they forced him to. I think just part of the natural byproduct of working for strong women and making comic books with them is reflecting some of that in the characters you write. And so I think just just organically, the situation of him having two really good, really strong female editors as he was writing kind of helped his imagination go in the direction of writing really strong female characters. So, now obviously, I had known, right? You know, you see his storm. You see... um you know, Psylocke and Dazzler, and all, all the characters that he wrote that that have these really strong stories and really strong presences. You know, Mystique, uh, Callisto, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, but to really have him talk about and attribute that to the editorial presence was something that, that I had not heard before. It makes sense, <laughs> you know, once you hear it, but I just hadn't really put it together. That, like, well, duh. You know he's he's translating kind of his working environment that was really positive for him and and using that to really motivate himself to to write these really strong characters so I thought that was really cool really interesting Um, you know one thing you've heard before and sometimes people paint this as kind of curmudgeon-y but um, Claremont was really really reluctant to spin off Um, as the X-Men got so popular and so big uh, Editor-in-Chief Jim Shooter insisted on it. Um, and when that initially happened, the first few times, Paramount was like, okay, well, if we have to do it, I'm going to do all of it. And he, he really, really wanted to control his corner of the universe. Um, didn't want to necessarily have other people play in his sandbox, at least for a while. Um, and so that's why he uh, started off riding New Mutants, why he started off riding Wolverine, Um, you know and he talks about how that was pretty cool because working with Sienkiewicz caused him to shift his tone you know as he got more and more comfortable with Sienkiewicz's art he's like well I gotta feed into this and so he made the book stranger and stranger um (laughs) so that was pretty cool I I really liked him talking about the, the creative synergy um you know, that went with doing those kinds of books and those kinds of comics, and how, you know, as a writer, you know, your best comic writers write and just what they're doing, you know, for the art. We just talked about that on the episode before this, uh, which was 377, I think, um, you know, with uh, Hickman and just a di- completely different writing lift, if you will, between uh, the most recent issues. Of X-Men and giant-sized X-Men um, and how really playing into the artist's strengths and so Claremont did that as well, right? When he had, you know Sal on there a little bit more maybe standard comic book stories then Sin Cambridge comes along and starts tripping out uh, He makes the stories weirder. We get the demon bear and stuff like that. So and that was pretty cool. Also, really enjoyed uh, a mid '80s Chris Marvel Christmas party where the invitation was from Santa Claus, which you know we've seen a hundred times now. There was a Wolverine Christmas card that was Santa Claus, you know, like his claws. Um, so, you know, speaking of of working with artists and yeah, how he changed New Mutants, he also let the artist kind of dictate. The characters that he focused on, you know, based on who they like to draw the most or who they're most interested in. He talks about how initially when Cochran was the, the artist, that Cochran loved Nightcrawler. So he spent a lot of time writing and focusing on Nightcrawler. That he and Byrne felt like they had, John Byrne, had a lot to do with Wolverine. And so the series as a whole during that run was very Wolverine-centric. Um, you know, talks about Paul... Smith really loves Storm. And so Claremont really focused on Storm. That's where we get the transition to punk rock Storm with the Mohawk. Kind of an idea, some designs from Paul Smith. Um, That that was really cool. Um, You know, when John Gina comes on, I think that he really focuses on Rogue, right? Um, Because John Romina really loved Rogue, and Wolverine as well, right? He loves to draw Wolverine, as we've seen multiple times. But, you know, Rogue gets a big focus and as she's brought into the story. Um, yeah, so then we get to the part where, you know, he's doing Uncanny, he's doing the Mutants, Wolverine, at least the many stages at this point, and starts to solo as well. Um, but X-Factor was going to be done without him. And this made him kind of mad. <laughs> Not only because he had to to release control of the book, but, um, you know, no secret. As an X-Men, long-time X-Men fan, I've heard multiple stories about this, but he was pretty pissed that they resurrected Gene. Um, you know, I will say, you know, Weezy was one of Claremont's editors, and they were really good friends. When she came on the book, she it says that she made a really big effort, or she says that she made a really big effort to realign X-Factor to X-Men, to kind of make it closer to Claremont's tone and story direction. Um, you know, and she says she would have to remind him of the... Uh, <laughs> dangling pl- plot threads. that Claremont would just write and write and write, and that some sometimes the reason there's so much space between the introduction of an idea and the execution, or be- before it becomes the main story, is that you know if if as a reader you felt like sometimes Claremont forgot, well sometimes he did, and as editors, uh, Weezy and Ascenti would have to, you know, kind of keep up with the dangling. Plot threads, and they went too long, and too many people wrote in, or they were just unresolved for too long. They have to kind of rein Claremont in and say, "Hey, remember this thing you were gonna do? Uh, why don't we go ahead and do that?" <laughs> so that that's really funny. I will say the interaction between the three of them, especially because there were some some portions of the interview where they were all three in a room. Uh, Claremont, Weezy, and Ascenti were were sitting, you know, in a room together, and the chemistry between them was really, really strong. Um, you well, know, maybe iffy <laughs> some places, but <laughs> I don't want to cast any aspersions. But there was just a very, very strong dynamic and chemistry between them, and that was probably some of the more interesting part of the documentary. I mean, hearing them talk separately and address things and tell stories and get little tidbits and nuggets was a lot of fun. But when they were in the room together, that was that was definitely the most dynamic part of the of the documentary. Um, you know, and Claremont, again, talks about how he took on the miniseries Wolverine, uh, the New Mutants graphic novel to kind of keep X-Men and Mutants under his control and siloed to a part of the of the universe. Um, even when they crossed over, uh, there was, you know, some you know, talking about Wheezy coming on and wanting to realign. So, Mutant Massacre was all Claremont's idea. And Weezy was like, no, I want in. Um, and so they started the mandate of, of X-Men crossovers with that, you know, using um, obviously Uncanny X-Men and X-Factor and the Mutant Massacre, and this kind of paved the way for uh, Inferno, and then, you know, Extinction Agenda really, you know, kind of towards the end of Claremont's career, but that made it, so not only that X-Men had to have an event like kind of a loose event every year but had to have a very specific event every year um so you know Mutant massacre kind of started all of that and the it really kind of came from the fact that Claremont was just going to do a big story but other people wanted to play with that idea and so uh, crossover here we come or, or classic X-Over and kind of laid, laid the foundation for a lot of future crossovers um so, one of the weird things about the documentaries is these kind of weird, like, cosplayer vignettes that kind of break up the scenes, so to speak. Um, they're not bad. I mean, they're, they definitely look kind of, you know, not movie budget costumes. Um, and there's kind of people, like, dancing around, like Emma Frost and Jean Grey. It's kind of like, not, I don't know, it was weird. I don't know if it really fit, but it was there. Um,. So obviously, you know, X-Men, the meteoric rise of his run and just people reading more and more, buying more and more, and just eventually got too big for just Claremont. Like he couldn't keep the control he wanted. And then uh, when Bob Harris comes on, and for everything we've heard about Jim Shooter, apparently Harris was a very aggressive editor, at least from Claremont's perspective. And he really loved the artist, really loved Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld um and was willing to kind of give in to what they wanted, so to speak. Not that I don't know, I don't know. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. There was an intentional power struggle, but it was obviously a conflict of ideas and, and Harris tended to side with the artists, especially as they started becoming really, really popular. Um so Liefeld says something weird, it's surprise, surprise. Um he says that X Men was getting stale. I think maybe he meant New Mutants, but saying the whole franchise was kind of getting stale, and that he, particular, and you know Jim Lee as well. That's nice to include him, right? Um, you know, pumps a new lifeblood into. I I don't know. That's a fair assessment. I will not say anything to deny their popularity. They were superstars, and. You know, they they ruled the henhouse at the time. But to say that, that X-Men was going in the wrong direction at the time may be overstating it. Um, you know, but they, obviously they came in with, with huge contributions, you know, with the aesthetic of the X-Men, costume designs, character designs, you know, even the characters that Liefeld actually brought in, and Jim Lee a little bit too, right, with Gambit and stuff like that. And of course, Cable, Deadpool, really huge characters that Liefeld run in, you know, the transition from New Mutants to X-Force, um, you know, and that kind of, that yeah, transition is because he was given free reign, um, or, and wanted free reign on New Mutants, and it wasn't really a good match, which is why Weezy left the book, right? Uh, she did pretty well to be diplomatic in the, in <laughs> the documentary, but, um, basically so just says, you know... The editors were saying that that they wanted to let Liefeld do what he wanted to do, and she didn't really want to do what Liefeld wanted to do, so it just made sense for them to kind of um, amicably divorce from the book. So, you know, as Harris' favorite artists and editors wanted more control of the cash cow, which was the X-Men, it kind of led to what we see. And we hear this talked about a lot nowadays as well, right? Um, there's kind of a desire to return X-Men to the status quo, get back to basics, kind of an editorial mandate to make Magneto a bad guy again, which, you know, we know happens going into the launch of X-Men number one in the nineties, right? Um, you know, Claremont had been moving Magneto in one direction and he kind of goes back a different way. Um, Claremont starts that cause he wanted to try to hang on and keep writing. Um, you know eventually will depart um but you know that wasn't necessarily his original intent to take Magneto back that way which I thought was really interesting I guess I would always just assume that the parts he did write on with x-men were what he wanted to do and he just kind of eventually butted heads with Jim Lee and and bowed out which that part is true I didn't realize that he was kind of being told what to write on those issues, um not saying that's good or bad or right or wrong, I mean, comics is a business, you gotta deal with that part of it but it is definitely interesting to hear him talk about it, and you know, with his departure, you know, he talks about how he was not on the same page as Jim Lee he saw the writing on the wall that he was not, regardless of his story career (laughs) he was not gonna win against Jim Lee so he went off the book, um The weird part to me, and I remember thinking this a little bit, too. There was no, like, big goodbye. No, like, big letters page, like, oh, it's sad to see you go. Follow him here. Because I don't know if anyone really knew what he was going to do next. Um, If you're listening to John Wilson on all the pouches. You know that he will eventually turn up, actually with Jim Lee again, of all places, uh, introducing some new characters to his Wildcats book over at Image, uh, the Huntsman, and I don't remember what else he actually brought, but he, you know he helped write that arc. Um, so it's weird. I mean, so at some point he's able to reconcile things with Jim Lee and and you know have some more creative synergy with him down the road. But, you know, at this point, I think X-Men was just too... too big, too... too much at risk for Marvel. Um, and maybe some decisions were made hastily, I don't know. Um, but yeah, kind of unceremoniously walks away from a book that he defined for decades. Um, you know, the, the question is posed, or maybe stated in the documentary, that, um, you know, there, there's no modern Claremont. I think that's pretty true. Um, no one doing quite what he did, right? For the extent of time that he did it. From, you know, the mid-70s to early 90s, him just owning part of the universe and controlling it. I mean... Even if you think of, like, modern day, some of the guys have had really, really long runs and big impacts on the universe, like, uh, Vendis or Jason Aaron, um, you know, Scott Snyder over at DC, it's not really quite the same thing, they're more maestros of, like, a whole universe, picking maybe a, a foothold in, or a doorway in that they focus on, you know, Aaron with Thor, You know, and doing lots of other stuff around that. You know, the events, a little bit of Avengers. um, But really riding Thor, letting Marvel kind of pivot or orbit around his Thor story. Claremont really didn't as much and big an impact as he had on the comics as a whole. And obviously the way he shaped and grew the X-Men. You know, the X-Men felt kind of separate the whole time he was there. And they'd show up in some other books every now and then, and other people would show up in his books, and Claremont and did what a lot of writers do, right? He would cross over with the other books that he specifically was writing, you know, Spider-Woman, um, Iron Fist, you know, Sabretooth going in Iron Fist, and then coming over the X-Men. Um, after Spider-Woman gets canceled, he brings Jessica Drew into the X-Men story, and specifically into the Wolverine story, for quite a while, and as a way to kind of continue her story, because he enjoyed writing her. So you have that, but the the fact that the X-Men stayed so separate is really different from the way maybe modern writers with that same impact or longevity might do things differently. They don't have necessarily the silo. Um, So no doubt, Claremont changed comics. Um, I mean, his his form of storytelling, the subplotting, the working with the artist to kind of change the tone of what he's doing, um, you know, just, just a pioneer in comics and a a trailblazer for sure. Um, you know, and even, you know, helped Fox find the X-Men, you know, they consulted him some getting ready for the first movie, um, you know, making sure they got it right and going to the master, uh, to, to do that. Um, so you know, heard some people talk about you know, d- does he overcredit his own influence on the movies? Is it the right amount? And I think that's you know questions that the Fox hasn't really jumped on answering. But but if nothing else, whether as a consultative role or whether just the fact that these movies are all based on his stories and his universe, um, definitely a, a huge impact, huge influence, and. um That's kind of where the documentary ends, right? You know, at this point, Claremont has left Marvel, and we know he'll come back, right? He'll do some things here and there. After he he flirts with Image for a little bit, he'll come back and do um, some of the extreme X-Men, you know, he had a Nightcrawler series not too long ago. Um, He's got a revamp or a continuation of God Loves Man Kills on the Horizon. I'm not too sure about that. Um... You know he did that x-men forever which which is kind of why i thought that you know he had a specific direction he was going with x-men number one because this he kind of retells what he would have done quote-unquote had he been allowed to continue on the book um you know and i'll say i love x-men obviously i love x-men i really love claremont um grew up reading him big fan And I would say for the most part, and you can listen to my flashbacks if you want to hear exactly how well, but I think, you know, for the most part, his classic stuff holds up really, really well. Like, I enjoy going back to it. I enjoy revisiting it. I do not necessarily think he's kept up. Like, then his really modern stuff is not my favorite. I don't know if he just kind of passed his prime or whatnot, but, you know not looking at current day, but looking at the past, he's just such a gifted writer that shaped a lot of... You know, I've talked several times on the podcast about X-Men kind of influencing my thought process, helping shape my worldview, and I'm not going to say that everything Claremont wrote is perfect, you know, as far as equality and and oppression, but there's a lot of really good stuff there, though. And, you know, most of that worldview that the X-Men comes from, the allegory for the suppressed groups really taking that and running with it, I mean, that's that's Claremont. Claremont did that. And a lot of people have built on that and done really cool things with that, but you can't ignore the foundation. You know, X-Men was the X-Men, right? Lee and Kirby and some of the other early creators had, you know, different level of quality of stories, but Claremont, you know, with the help of some really spectacular artists, yes, but Claremont really took kind of a also-ran comic and turned it into one of the biggest things in comics, you know, ever, and you you can't deny that, and the documentary does pretty good, it's definitely kind of pro-Claremont, you know, I thought it was interesting that they got an a interview from Liefeld. There's no general interview. I thought that was also kind of interesting, maybe in his absence, or maybe, you know, he's pretty busy. A lot, a lot busier than Liefeld now, so, you know, maybe there's a business reason for that as well. But, you know, I, it definitely is slanted towards saying, you know, Marvel did him wrong, and, you know, maybe they did. But... So, I, I would say the documentary is not neutral, but it's definitely very interesting, very eye-opening. I just enjoyed hearing Claremont talk. Um, you know, like I said, the the scenes with him and Ascenti and Wheezy in the same room was was very energetic, listening to them talk about and to each other about kind of their heyday and their glory days was, was a lot of fun. So, all in all, I think I'll probably cap it there. So, you know, not quite 40 minutes, maybe we'll see you after after I edit but um yeah I'm just just a very interesting documentary if you have the if you're an x-men fan like I said maybe not necessarily just a general audience documentary but if you're an x-men fan and you have prime or you have another way to watch it I and you haven't yet I would definitely pull the trigger and you know take the hour 10 minutes and and check it out and give it a watch um and you know, whether you watch it after this or you've already watched it when you're listening to this, I'd love to hear your opinion on it. Um, maybe what are some other things that, that I didn't mention that you thought were really interesting or, or new news to you, right? If you haven't seen it, it's new to you. And then what what NBC Thursday nights used to say. Um, so yeah, if you have anything like that, you know, let me know. So anyway, that's going to do it. This uh, our lost episode covering a lost period of time uh, with the Claremont. Chris Claremont's X-Men documentary. Um, I'm not going to rate it. I would say I enjoyed it and I think you should watch it. Um, Yeah. So that's it. Episode 250 is finally here and done in the can. So, um, please like the Facebook page. Uh, Twitter is at SnickCast. Facebook shares and Twitter retweets on the episodes are always appreciated. You know, thank you very much for those of you that have consistently been helping out with that and spread the word of the podcast. I I really appreciate it. Um, if you want show notes and stuff, that's at snickcast.podbean.com. And I don't know when I'm going to put this out. Whenever I have a kind of a slow spot, <laughs> it'll come out. But um, so I don't know necessarily what'll be next. But it'll be more snicked. So until next time, hugs and snicks, everybody. Bye bye. And snacked.